So, <clears throat> you remember, for those of you who here last Sunday, not last Sunday, Sunday before last, we've been having lots of mince pies since then, but, um, but the Sunday before last, we really thought about the humble king. We thought about uh, Jesus, the humble king, and uh, we learnt um, in Philippians 2 um, about how he didn't cling to his equality with God, about how he was willing to become a servant, um, about how he divested himself of his privileges of God and he became willing to um, live among us and finally to die the death of a criminal. But as followers of Jesus, what does it mean to live in the light of these great um, and glorious truths, these profound truths we've learned about Jesus? What does that really mean in a society around us which is so often hostile to that king and hostile to his followers? Paul describes the society <clears throat> that he was in um, later in chapter 2 as crooked and perverse. He described it as a crooked and perverse generation. A society which was warped in its activities and distorted in its values. And that is the society that we find ourselves in today. A society that is warped in its activities and distorted in its values. Isaiah, above me, um, there's a quote from Isaiah. And Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And so in this respect, the society that Paul found himself in is really unchanged from our own. All societies, all human societies that are not under the direct rule of Jesus himself tend to degenerate into crookedness and depravity. So pagan Philippi was decadent, idolatrous and immoral. And our own society is decadent, idolatrous and immoral. But in such a context, what does the example of Jesus as the humble king, what does that mean to us in practice? Well, Paul says, doesn't he, if you look at the passage, he says in verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. They're strange words, aren't they? Work out your own salvation. What does that mean? What does it look like to work out your salvation in a society that's so often hostile to that king and hostile to his followers? There's been a lot of ink spilled over what that phrase, work out your own salvation, means. But in order to understand this a bit further, we really need to just understand, before we can look into what working out our salvation is, we need to understand two things. There's two things that we need to understand, basic things. Thing number one is, is what is salvation? What is salvation? What do you think salvation is? Well, <clears throat> the Greek word for salvation is the word soteria, soteria. And soteria really means deliverance or rescue. A more simple way of putting it would be freedom. Salvation means freedom. In Jesus, we have been given freedom 
as something that we enjoy now as a present possession. Um, Romans 8 and verse 21 talks about the glorious liberty of the children of God. So salvation is freedom. But if salvation is freedom, then the second thing we need to understand is A, what are we freed from? And B, when are we freed from those things? So the first thing that we um, receive freedom from is the wrath of God. This is the wrath that we have incurred by living against God, by trampling on his laws. We have incurred his wrath. It says on the screen above me, it says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, because the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God, God's fixed determination and displeasure against sin, abides on him. And the consequence of having the wrath of God abiding on us is that we have an instinctive fear of death because we know that we're headed for judgment. As soon as this life is over, we know that we are headed for judgment. And it says in Hebrews 9 and verse 27, it's appointed to men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So as a result of this, people spend their whole lives with this lurking fear of death and judgment hanging over them. This sours and discolors everything that they do and they feel in bondage to it. And even famous atheists are not immune from feeling this terror at the prospect of judgment. You may have heard of David Hume. He was an atheist philosopher and he was made famous for his philosophy of empiricism and skepticism of religion. And when he got to his deathbed, he cried loudly, I am in flames. And it's said that his desperation there was a terrible scene, a horrible scene. He was aware that he was about to pass into a reality where he would be in the presence of an awesome God and that he was in uh, and he was terrified of that. Hebrews 2 and verse 15 talks about this fear of death and judgment that all humans experience. It says that he himself shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So this verse states that Jesus has defeated the devil who holds mankind under the fear of death and bondage. But the question is, in our salvation, when do we receive freedom from the wrath of God? When do we receive freedom from the prospect of death and judgment? Well, the answer to that is at the moment of conversion. From the moment we trust in Jesus Christ and we receive his forgiveness, we know that we have been released forever from the terror of the eternal consequences of sin, and that is because we have been justified with God. Romans 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we now enjoy this peace with God as a present possession. And notice that the verse above me says, having been justified, having been justified. It's something we enjoy. Nobody can take that away from you. You have been justified with God. And what's more, we receive this salvation or this justification as a free gift. We receive it as a free gift. There are no hidden clauses, no strings attached. It's freely given to us. And it's given to us because of what Jesus achieved on our behalf. It says in Ephesians and chapter 2, it says, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God, and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, what I'm trying to say here in a very roundabout way is that salvation is freedom from a lot of different things. And one of those freedoms is freedom from God's wrath and freedom from the prospect of death. And we receive that um, at, uh, at, uh, at salvation, at the moment of salvation. But salvation is wider than that. Salvation is bigger than that. Salvation isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card, you know? Um, that's not all that salvation is. The Bible teaches that salvation brings practical freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Practical freedom from the power of sin in our lives. Jesus talked about people being enslaved to their sinful appetites and desires. And he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So lots of people in our society consider themselves to be free because they can do exactly what they please. They think, I can do whatever I want, but ultimately that's an illusion because they're just bound to follow that, what their sinful body, what their lusts and their addictions dictate to them, and there is no escape for them. I've seen people um, in my work as a GP whose lives have literally been torn apart through addiction to alcohol and drugs, and they are in bondage to it, and there is no way that they can escape. And it wreaks havoc in the lives of all those around them. They are in bondage. But the good news is, is that the power of these sinful desires to dominate the direction of our lives has been broken at Calvary. Paul says in, uh, in uh, Romans 6, verse 6, he says, "...knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him." that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Because of this reality that we have been released from the stranglehold of sin, then we are now slaves to righteousness and holiness. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. But I want you to think about this. So salvation comes in stages. So when we receive salvation, at the moment of, of receiving salvation, we receive salvation and freedom from God's wrath. But we are increasingly working out freedom from the dominion of sin in our lives with the ultimate aim of being conformed fully to Jesus Christ and of um, resembling him perfectly. 
It says in Romans 8, verse 30, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So as Christians, we have the responsibility and also the joy of working out this freedom in every aspect of our lives to become more and more conformed to that image of Christ and what he looks like. But this can, avoid, this can involve at times back-breaking labour. Um, it can involve hard and gruelling work. Sometimes in our lives we think any effort we put into our Christian lives is legalism. And we think of grace and effort as though they're opposites. Um, but the reality is, is that we need to put effort into our Christian walks. Grace-empowered effort to become more and more like Christ. We don't just sit back and receive Christ-likeness, but we need to bring our bodies into subjection. Paul talks about this. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. But I love the words of this. There was an old hymn, Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, and he wrote this hymn, and I think it's great. He said, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, or shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to own the prize and sailed through bloody seas? So, so often we think that we're going to be carried up to heaven on this flowery bed of ease, like a giant celestial inflatable that's just going to, going to take us up there. But the point is, is that we need to cooperate with God. We need to, on the basis of his grace, work out that Christ-likeness in our years. I don't know whether you've made any New Year's resolutions. Um, I always eat too much at Christmas. I spent all of Christmas eating incessantly. Um, lots of Christmas cake, lots of chocolate, um, because I've got a very, very sweet tooth. I'm probably heading for diabetes. <laughs> um, but, um, um, but I wonder if this year we would put as much effort into working out our salvation. Can I have an amen? Let's, let's come on, church. Let's say we're going to work out our salvation this year. You're going to work out your salvation and increase in Christ-likeness. Increase in Christ-likeness. Work out the freedom that we have been given. Work out that freedom that we have been given. But So there's three stages to salvation, really. At the moment we trust in Jesus, we are delivered from the penalty of sin, from the consequences of God's wrath and death. As we go through our Christian lives, we are being delivered progressively from the power of sin in our lives to become more like Christ. And one day, we're going to be delivered from the presence of sin and we will be perfectly like Jesus himself. Um, and it says in 1 John, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is, believe it or not, just an introduction. <laughs> but what I'm, what I'm going to do now is we're just going to quickly look through the rest of the passage. And I just want to look at, Paul says some very important things here about practically how we can work out our salvation. How can we work out our salvation? So we're just going to look at that um, practically. Um, so the first thing is, on your handout, is first of all, he tells us to work out our salvation 
by having the mind of Christ. Work out your salvation by having the mind of Christ. So Paul, um, when he's giving this exhortation in verse 12, he begins it by saying, therefore. Whenever there's an, you always hear this, you hear these kind of cliched Christian sayings again and again, don't you? But you've probably heard people say in sermons, whenever there's a therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And people are always saying that, aren't they? Which can be a bit annoying after a while. But, um, but, if, you, but if you do look at why the therefore is therefore, if you look back in um, chapter 2, you'll find that Paul is really saying, in light of Jesus' obedience and in light of the way Jesus obeyed God, work out your own salvation that way. Work out your salvation that way. If we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we need to make the mindset of Jesus our mindset. Do you know that the Bible says that as believers, if we're Christians, that we have the mind of Christ, that it's lying latent within us. The mind of Christ is something we receive by the Holy Spirit and it's lying dormant or latent within us. Um, So... I just want you to say that this morning. I know it sounds crazy, but I just want you to say that. Just say, if you're a Christian, I have the mind of Christ. Just say that now. I have the mind of Christ. And say it like you mean it. Amen. <laughs> because sometimes we think that we're trying, to, we're trying to get the mind of Christ. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says... For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. I've got the mind of Christ. You've got the mind of Christ. We possess the mind of Christ as believers. It's within us. We just have to turn it on. We just have to switch it on. I'm really bad with technology. I can't switch on most of my electrical appliances. But actually, if I knew how to, then I would have a great benefit from being able to do that. Um, And we can just switch on the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That's what the Bible says. But what do we learn about the mind of Christ? What is the mind of Christ like? Well, first of all, we learn in chapter 2 and verse 2, we're looking back now a bit earlier in the chapter, we learn that the mind of Christ is a mind which pursues unity. He says there, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Notice all the ones and the sames in that passage. One accord, one mind, unity. The Greek word is sumpsukos. It literally means being co-spirited, being co-spirited. That oneness of mind, that sameness that we enjoy. The mind of Christ gives us oneness of mind. It's a mind which gives up chasing personal ambitions and goals and, and brings a true and lasting unity. One mind, pursuing unity. But however, it's impossible to have true unity when everyone is pursuing their own goal. So the second aspect of the mind of Christ is that the mind of Christ is a mind which is others-centred. A mind which is others-centred. A mind free of selfish ambitions. It says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. It's not a denouncement of having any ambition whatsoever. You have to have ambition if you're going to do anything in life. Otherwise, you will literally sit there and achieve nothing. 
Um, but it is ambition which is purely centred on self-advancement, which is being, um, which is being um, uh, you know, denounced here. We remember the words that Jeremiah spoke to Barak in the Old Testament. He said, And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord. But I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. But ambition which is focused on the glory of God is a mighty focus for good. It's a mighty focus for good. There was a count whose name was Nicholas von Zinzendorf. (laughs) Um, And um, he was born into a position of enormous privilege and wealth. And um, he turned his back on this and he found the Moravians. And the Moravians were a missionary movement and they took the gospel all over the world. And this Nicholas von Zinzendorf said, I have one passion. I have one passion. It is he and he alone. I have one passion. It is he and he alone. The mind of Christ is a mind which is others-centred. So if self-seeking ambition is out, then so is conceit. It says in verse uh, 3 that conceit, conceit's defined as having an excessively, an excessively favourable opinion of one's own ability or importance. Instead of that, we should have a Christ-like lowliness of mind. We should remember that we come to God spiritually bankrupt, with nothing really to offer him. We come as destitute paupers. Any gifts or abilities we have are due to his grace alone, and he has the power to remove them at any time. But also, not only do we come to God spiritually bankrupt, but if you think about what we are in our humanity, if you think about how finite we are, There was a chorus that said, I don't know if you've sung it before, and it says, we are a moment, you are forever, God before ages, Lord before time. And the Bible says that our lives are like grass. We're here today and gone tomorrow. But God is the eternal one. And so when we think of our position as creatures of what we are, then it should humble us. It should cause us to be lowly in mind. We know that we're not the great I am, but that we worship the great I am. And finally, as we have the mind of Christ, we seek to esteem others as better than ourselves. What does that mean in practice? Does it mean that we necessarily think that everyone else is better at everything um, than we are? Well, it can't mean that logically, can it? For Hussein Bolt or Mo Farah to think that I am a better athlete than he is would be insanity, because I'm just not. <laughs> but so, so it doesn't mean that. But it means that we choose, we make a decision of love. We choose to consider others' priorities and others' needs as more important than our own. So that's what that means. Um, So so that's what that means. But the third aspect of the mind of Christ which we have is it is a mind which is characterised by a bond-servant mentality. A bond-servant mentality. We've spoken at great length about this, but we find out that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, he became a slave. He became a slave, the lowest of the low. So we need to start seeing ourselves as slaves of Christ and of bondservants of all if we're going to grow in this true Christ-likeness. And finally, the mind of Christ is a mind which obeys even to the point of death, even to the point of death. 
Jesus knew that the will of his father involved brutal execution on a Roman cross. He knew that. And we can see on the Garden of Gethsemane the turmoil of Jesus as he wrestled with that. It says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It wasn't easy for Jesus to submit. It wasn't easy for him to obey. And yet he obeyed in perfect obedience, even to the point of death. So first of all, we work out our own salvation by having the mind of Christ. But next, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Not fear that we're going to suddenly lose our salvation because we've already been delivered from God's wrath at the moment of salvation when we trust in Jesus. But fear that we are going to be ashamed on the day of Christ. Fear that we're going to be ashamed on the day of Christ. Um, We have to be very sober about this. Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. We must all appear before the judgment of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So if we fail to, to work out our own salvation, we may end up with a saved soul, but we could have a wasted life, a wasted life. We could get to the end of our lives and we find that everything in our lives is burnt up like wood or stubble, a wasted life. We have this responsibility to work out our salvation soberly. But also if we don't work out our salvation soberly, then we may come under the chastening of God. Um, You remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they thought that they they could just lie to God and get away with it. Um, But they both died. Um, They they died prematurely. Um, And the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so often we take that very lightly. Um, And we think there are no consequences to what we do. Although our salvation is assured, we can fall into the chastening hand of God if we do not work out that salvation, if we do not live in freedom from sin and progress towards Christ-likeness. It is a fearful thing. But not only should we be thinking about our own uh, situation, about the chastening we may endure, um, or um, the fact that we may be ashamed on the day of Christ, but we need to think about others as well, about how working out our salvation will, will affect others as well. Um, and Paul was someone whose joy was in working out his salvation so that other believers um, would be able to be fruitful and abundant. And he says, so that I may rejoice on the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or laboured in vain. So, so working out our salvation by having the mind of Christ, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, um, but thirdly, working out our salvation, being confident of the transformative power of God, being confident of his transformative power. It says in verse 13 that it's God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. 
all thinkers through the ages have agreed upon the fact that there is no power strong enough to change the human heart, that deep within us um, are a complicated bundle of sometimes aggressive and certainly self-seeking desires and wants that we have. And there is no power that is strong enough to overcome that. Martin Luther talked about humanity being curved in upon itself. Malcolm Muggeridge talked about the tiny dark dungeon of the ego. And we are unable to escape from these forces. Um, sometimes people think that education will do it. A lot of people these days think that education is a panacea for all of society's um, ills. But the thing is, education is unable to fundamentally change those desires and drives of the human heart. They remain the same. William Temple was an Archbishop of Canterbury in the past, and he saw that education was useless to change the human heart. He says, I am the centre of the world I see. Where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by widening my horizon of interest so far as it is like the climbing of a tower which widens the horizon for physical vision whilst leaving one still the centre and standard of reference. So education does good things, it broadens our vision, but it cannot fundamentally change the human heart. It's powerless to do that. It's futile. So it's only the power of the Holy Spirit that is stronger than our hearts. Do you remember the Rend Collective song that we sing? I think, I mean, surprising you think, is there any profound theology in Rend Collective? But actually there is. Um, because one of the words of the song says, you are stronger than our hearts, you are greater than the dark. So the darkness which is within you and I, the darkness deep within us, the Holy Spirit and Jesus is stronger than that. And he is victorious over that. And God, who is working in us, is changing our desires deep down at a place where no therapist can get to, at a place where no educationist can get to. God is working deep inside you um, to change you and to make you more like Christ. And that is how we can be confident in working out God's salvation. But finally, he goes on to say um, in verse 14, he says, Do all things without complaining and disputing. Work out your own salvation without complaining and disputing. You would not think, <clears throat> you would think that working out your salvation would be something a bit more glamorous than just avoiding complaining. Um, complaining seems like a small thing. But actually, God's kingdom and God's glory is displayed in these seeming trivialities, just avoiding uh, complaining. Little things matter when it comes to working out our salvation. And avoiding complaining is a little thing, but it does matter. Being uncomplaining is linked to our walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Even when he was being tortured and about to suffer death, um, he did not complain. It says in 1 Peter, it says, When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Complaining's a national pastime, isn't it, in this um, country, in the UK? We're all very good at complaining. Um, I don't know why, <laughs> but it's quite fun, isn't it? 
But do you know what? Do you know who the Do you know who the first complainer was in the Bible? Do you know who the first complainer was? It was actually Adam. And do you know who he was complaining about? He was complaining about Eve. Um, so so Adam blames Adam blames God, and then he blames poor Eve as well. And he says to God, "The woman you gave me, God, i.e., it's your fault, <laughs> and the woman's fault. <laughs> she gave me of the tree, and I ate." And haven't men been blaming women ever since? Amen. Um, <laughs> but, but we all complain, and complaining is a manifestation of the flesh. It's a manifestation of the um, Adam-like nature that we have within us. But, you know, complaining is a serious sin in the Bible. Um, uh, Paul talks about the Corinthian believers, and it says, don't complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And when the children of Israel actually complained, you read in Numbers 11 and verse 1, it says, Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. So very serious thing, complaining. One of those things, I think it's one of those sins a bit like gluttony. We don't really, as I'm sort of winding in another piece of cheesecake or whatever, we don't really think about There's certain things, certain sins in the Bible we don't think a lot about. And complaining is one of them. We don't even really think it's a sin, do we, sometimes? Um, but complaining is a serious sin. Um, why is it a sin? First of all, complaining is very selfish, isn't it? It's con- concerned solely with whether my personal needs are being met. Are my personal needs being met? That's the opposite of everything that Jesus called us to. It says in Galatians 5 and verse 13, it says, You, brethren, have been called to liberty, but do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And if we're complaining, we're just focused on, on our own situation at the end of the day. But not only is complaining selfish, but it's also destructive. Do you know that your words have a life changing impact? on the people around you. I can remember certain things people have said to me that have made a difference in my life, one way or the other. They've either brought health to my life or they've brought destruction to my life. Our words, can, can, they can motivate, they can inspire, they can heal, they can build people up, but they have the potential to discourage and tear down and destroy. And it says in Ephesians, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So complaining selfish, it's destructive, but not only that, it steals our joy. Complaining steals our joy. So not only is it wrong, not only does it not help anybody else, but also it sucks all the joy out of our own lives too. And the Bible says in Proverbs, it says, a merry heart does good like medicine. But a broken spirit um, crushes and dries the bones. A broken spirit crushes and dries the bones. But also complaining is a form of blasphemy. It's a form of blasphemy because when we complain, we're really putting God in the dock and we're saying, I don't like the way that you're running the universe. I think I could do it better. Um, You're not really good. You're not meeting my needs. Um, And Moses says that to the children of Israel as well. He says, your complaints are not against us but they're against the Lord. So what should you do when you feel like complaining? What should you do when you feel like complaining? I've got two antidotes for you this morning, two antidotes. First of all, complain to God instead. Complain directly to God instead. 
David says, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. Complain to God directly instead. Call out to him. Cast your burdens on him. Release that burden before him. And counteract complaining with thankfulness. Counteract complaining with thankfulness. In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything give thanks. When I was in Northern Ireland... Um, someone told me off about complaining. I was complaining about the weather. And um, I said, oh, it's always raining here, isn't there? And my Northern Irish cousin said, oh, you're always complaining. And, the weather. and he quoted this verse at me. He said, in everything, give thanks. You know, the, yes, the weather's horrible here in Northern Ireland. But in everything, give thanks. So we need to adopt that mindset. So finally, so work out your salvation. Um, work out your salvation with the mind of Christ, with fear and uh, trembling without complaining and disputing. Work out your salvation distinctively, distinctively from the world around us. And really that's the opposite way to the world around us. Um, I'm not going to go through all that again. I'm afraid when I was preparing the sermon, I don't know, I just seem to develop so many points about everything. Um, so I'm not going to go through them all in great detail. But basically the mindset of the world is opposite to the mindset of Christ, which we spoke about earlier. The mindset of the world is opposite to the mindset of Christ. So the mindset of the world um, just is, is, leads to fragmentation rather than unity. The mindset of the world elevates self over others. The mind servant of the world is a master mentality rather than a bond servant mentality. And the mind servant of the world is marked by rebellion rather than by obedience. So we need to be, have a mindset the opposite way. But as we go through the passage and just look at the last couple of points, if we look at verse 16, he says, Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I've not run in vain or laboured in vain. So this is about working out your salvation joyfully. Um, as he sees that the Philippian believers are holding fast the word of life, and commentators don't know whether that means holding fast the word of life in terms of their sticking to the gospel or whether they're holding forth the word of life, but he sees as the believers are doing that, he is joyful. And his source of joy is in seeing that the Philippians are, um, are holding out the word of life. So he is joyful when he sees the progress of others. And finally, work out your salvation sacrificially. If we look in verse 17, he says, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also um, be glad and rejoice with me. And this really is the last thing that I want to just talk about briefly. These words of Paul here, he talks about working out your salvation sacrificially. And he says now that the time has come when he knows that his death is imminent and he says that he's going to be poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice. Now pagans and Jews at the time, they had a sacrifice which would have been like a meat offering and to finish off the sacrifice, they would pour out a drink offering over that sacrifice to complete the sacrifice um, before God. And Paul is saying here, amazingly, he's saying his martyrdom is just the drink offering which is poured on top of the sacrifice of the Philippian sacrifice. 
This whole letter is a thank you letter to the Philippians. And the thing that they, their sacrifice was a financial sacrifice that they had received at the hands of Epaphroditus. And so what's amazing is that Paul speaks of his own martyrdom, his death, his coming execution. He says, that's just the cherry on the top. That's just the drink offering which is being poured out on your sacrifice. The big sacrifice is the financial gift that you've given. My execution, my death, is just the cherry on the top. It's just the drink offering which is being poured out on top of the sacrifice. Um, and so he says that as he's poured out, as that sacrifice, that he rejoices and he's glad with them all. So really, that's just a run through. There's a lot, there's so much that we could say about working out our salvation. There's so much richness to what salvation is. And really, with salvation, we're really walking out in increasing freedom. We start off with freedom from God's wrath, freedom from judgment, and as we live our lives, we're, we're experiencing increasing freedom day by day to become more and more like Jesus Christ with the ultimate goal of becoming like him. Um, and as we do that, we're working out salvation in these ways in which Paul tells us here. Um, this is a new year. This is the start of a, of a new season in our lives and it's a time, a new year, when we take stock of what's gone on in the year past and we look forward to the year to come and as I say, I pray that our biggest um, resolution this year would be to work out all the implications of that salvation that we have received, to stride forward into the new year becoming increasingly Christ-like um, as his power takes control of our lives more and more so that the glory and the honour will go to him. So we're going to have a time now of, um, of worship. Um, have we got a song that we could just finish with? Um, I think it would be good if we could just have a song um, just while they're finishing getting ready. Um, whilst we do that song, um, I am just going to offer there to be a time of, of, of prayer. So if people want to receive prayer um, this morning, particularly as it's the new year, Maybe this is a time when you want to rededicate yourself to God. You want to rededicate yourself to working out your salvation in a practical way. You want to rededicate yourself towards that goal of becoming increasingly Christ-like.